millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Whenever I drive to London, which I don't normally do, but did this weekend, I get as many subjects from listening to BBC Radio as I could fill five shows with. I don't know where to begin. Let me begin with Omicron. I listened to a BBC news, not comment, but news interview with sundry individuals in the field of the coronavirus, scientists, doctors, and one nurse. I've got to tell you that if today's BBC had been the BBC in 1940, we would definitely have surrendered, just like all the others did on the European mainland. I listened to a BBC news interviewer where three times the interviewer used the word terrifying. He was terrified at figures which turn out actually not even to be true, but even if they were true. Is it the job of the BBC to be terrified? Can't they leave that to the people they are interviewing? Why do they have to describe it as terrifying? Can you imagine it? In 1940 and 41, the BBC talking about terrifying numbers of Junker 88s, Messerschmitt 109s swarming over the channel and attacking us. Terrified we would be. It was, frankly, stomach turning, not least because the data on which the terrifying questionnaire was being posed turned out not to be right. Everyone in Britain knows that everyone who was anyone said that Omicron cases were going to double every two days. Double every two days. Now, I'm no mathematician. In fact, I'm not even very good at maths. But I quickly worked out that that would mean that in one month, every single person on this island would be suffering from Omicron. I thought, that's a bit of a stretch. That sounds like a tall tale. In fact, the number hasn't doubled, not in two days, not in four, not in five. The number fell today as opposed to yesterday. So I'm beginning to smell a rat on this COVID Omicron subject. Why are they exaggerating it? I can tell it's to push people into having the vaccinations. I don't need to be pushed. I've had both vaccinations. I'm waiting 
for the Scottish Health Service to furbish me with my booster. I'm not against vaccination. I am against lying. I am against deliberate exaggeration of a public health emergency which can have all kinds of unintended consequences. If it's not doubling, let's look at what it is doing. Omicron today has put 88-0, 80 people in hospital. And until today has killed one person, or rather one person has died with the Omicron present in their system. That person was over 70 years old. That person had not been vaccinated. And we don't yet know because nobody will tell us whether they had any comorbidities or underlying health problems. But one dead person and 80 hospitalizations does not a lockdown add up. If they destroy further the British economy, if they destroy further the mental health, the fragile mental health of people already suffering from two years of all of this, if they postpone indefinitely again all those people who are waiting for elective surgery, all those people who've got all those other medical problems but can't get a look in or feel that they should not take a look in to the NHS because it's overwhelmed by Omicron, well, that would be a crime. That would be a crime against the British economy and thus the British people. It would be a crime against the mental health and the physical health of all of those currently being, to quote the BBC interviewer, terrified by Omicron. Now, I didn't get this off Big Senga on Facebook. I have deplored from the beginning of this pandemic the tendency of some to do their research by which they mean surfing the World Wide Web and coming up with anything they found there as if it was necessarily true or as if the facts therein were incontestable. No, I'm basing this on a Dr. Coetzee. Dr. Coetzee is the woman doctor in South Africa that first identified Omicron and who told us uh, that Omicron is about 28% as dangerous as the Delta, which was formerly the prevailing variant uh, that was cutting a swathe through people all over South Africa and all over the world. Now, again, I'm not a mathematician. I'm definitely not a medical man. But even I can work out that if there is a massive increase in transmission of a variant that is massively less dangerous, that massively less dangerous variant will become the prevailing 
orthodoxy. And if it does, that's not bad news. That is good news. It's like it's going to give even these unvaxxed people a vaccination of sorts. It's going to give them the illness and their natural immunity will respond. Do you see where I'm going with this? I'm saying that at this point, there is no argument for further lockdowns in Britain. And yet, COBRA met today. The Prime Minister was not at it, which may or may not be significant. But I hear from good sources that Parliament is to be recalled on Tuesday. And if Parliament is being recalled on Tuesday, and its business is to be a new lockdown in Britain, then I shall oppose it. Not because I'm a tinfoil hat wearer, not because I'm an anti-vaxxer, neither of which I am. You see, when the facts change, so do my opinions. And the facts as they are before us right now are that the Omicron variant of COVID-19 is not sufficiently traveling or affecting a sufficient number of people to justify the hype that is around it. It's not doubling every two days. The number yesterday was less than the number the day before. And doubling every two days is mathematically, inherently, extremely improbable in any case. But however widely it travels, if it is doing less harm than the variant it is supplanting, how would that be a reason for further devastating a British economy, a hospitality sector already on its knees, already perhaps on the verge of a 2008 style crash? Discuss, we will. But that was, of course, only one of Boris Johnson's problems this week. He, on Thursday, lost a parliamentary constituency in North Shropshire, which the Tories had held for 200 years. Just think about that. 200 years the people there have been returning a Tory MP, a constituency that voted 60% for Brexit. And where the Tories have been virtually unchallengeable always throughout that 200 years, except once. At the height of Corbyn mania in 2017, the Labour Party came close, closer than they ever have, to snatching it. Even in 2019, under the by then somewhat deflated Jeremy Corbyn, they still came second and they still got 12,000 votes. Uh, this time they came third. Uh, this time they were humiliated uh, by the switching of Labour voters 
to the Liberal Democrats, who captured the seat. Labour is now, ex post facto, pretending that its candidate was only a paper candidate. But that's a lie, you see, because I've got the emails that they were sending out daily, sometimes twice daily, begging their activists to come to North Shropshire to avoid, avert, exactly the humiliation that they, in the end, deservedly reaped. I've got the emails in which they beg their members for money so that they can fight the constituency harder in a by-election they're now pretending that they threw. But if it was bad for Keir Starmer, it was very much worse for Boris Johnson. It was a repudiation, as I predicted here last Sunday. My predictions are unerringly accurate in some regards on political matters. I wish I could pick horse races quite so well. Uh, but I said last week uh, that the Liberal Democrats were very likely to take this seat and that if they did, Boris Johnson would be toast. And they did, and he's toast. Not just because he lost, but as Mr. Macmillan said, it's never one damn thing, it's one damn thing after another. And that second damn thing came last evening with the news that one of his cabinet ministers, his right-hand man, the man with the key job of negotiating with the European Union, was resigning in protest at the direction of travel of Boris Johnson's government. He cited COVID lockdowns, higher taxes, and one or two other matters, but he might well have said, that Boris didn't quite get Brexit done and that pressure was being put on him to soften his negotiating stance vis-a-vis -vis the European Union to concede areas that he had been negotiating hard to defend. We'll be talking to the doyen of cephologists, Professor Sir John Curtis, in a few minutes on all of this. We'll be talking uh, to Rachel Blevins about the situation in the United States, about the political and the economic and one or two cultural matters uh, that are rolling out in the United States. So make sure you stay tuned for all of that. And it's 80 years since Pearl Harbor that day of infamy when Japanese fascism launched a sneak attack on the United States Navy based in Pearl Harbor on the Hawaiian Islands. A great loss of life, great loss of war material, undoubtedly suffered by the people of Hawaii and the United States Navy. Remembered forever, known about by most people. But what is not known about is that in Hawaii, the natives are getting restless. They're beginning to realize that for them, the United States cares little. They're only a naval base to them. 
whilst they may have been given the status of the 50th state of the United States, they sure ain't treated with respect. We'll be talking to a member of parliament in Hawaii, former member of parliament, a man who will be returning to the parliament and indeed maybe even the US Senate in due course about these matters. Now look, I've got a poll running. Is Omicron A, being taken seriously or B, being exaggerated? Well, you already know my point of view. I'll be interested in yours. You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube channel, and on my Telegram channel. It's the mother of all talk shows, and that's why you're encouraged to speak back to the teachers. Let me give you the phone numbers with which to do so. If you're in the United Kingdom, it's 0808196552. And if you're in the United States, it's plus one, 844-944-3344. It's entirely free, whether you're in the United Kingdom, the United States, or Canada. Why not get dialing now to avoid disappointment? This is the mother of old talk shows. Let's go straight to the maestro, the doyen of cephalogists, the man who's forgotten more about elections in Britain than most people will ever know. Professor Sir John Curtis, professor of politics at Strathclyde University in my old manor in Glasgow. Uh, Professor, thank you for joining us. It's not every day you get the chance to say that somebody's lost a seat they've held for 200 years, is it? No, it certainly isn't. And the truth is, this is a by-election that the Conservatives should never have been at risk of losing. Yes, of course, governments find life difficult in by-elections. They often suffer quite a substantial swing. Um, and, you know, a 20-point drop in the Conservative vote, you would have said, well, pretty bad, but, you know, not unprecedented. However, what we saw here was a 31-point drop in Conservative support. It's the second biggest drop in a by-election that the uh, party was trying to defend in post-war British politics. Um, and it occurred in a constituency that voted 60% for leave in the EU referendum. It's a very different constituency from Cheshire and Amersham, which the Democrats also won from the Conservatives back in the summer. That was a pro-Remain constituency. It was one where the Conservative vote was already in decline. Um, and whether the Liberal Democrats had done rather well in the general election. Um, that was, as it were, an apple ripe to be picked. In contrast, North Shropshire was stony ground for the Liberal Democrats. They only managed to come second narrowly once in the, in the course of the last six elections. Um, you might well have expected that the Labour Party would have had to go at it, but they decided to leave it to the Liberal Democrats. And the Liberal Democrats uh, took that opportunity, um, frankly, with... Uh, quite amazing success. Now, uh, how do you account for it? Uh, it can't be Brexit because the constituency was overwhelmingly Brexit. So what was it? Well, the most immediate and proximate explanation is undoubtedly the Prime Minister's difficulties of the last six weeks. The national opinion polls have uh, told us that in the wake of one 
the Patterson affair, of course, an affair that led directly to this by-election. But secondly, the um, video that was released of the mock press conference in which reference was made in a somewhat nervous, giggling fashion to an alleged party stroke gathering on the 18th of December last year in contravention of the lockdown uh, restrictions and various other stories since about that, in the wake of which it's quite clear the public do not believe, two-thirds of them, that the uh, Prime Minister has been telling the truth. His personal ratings have fallen quite substantially and support for the Conservatives has literally fallen by six points in six weeks. That's quite a substantial and speedy drop by the normal rhythm of opinion polls. So it was already clear that there was quite a substantial body of disaffection amongst including many people who voted Conservative in 2019. And in the context of a by-election, when there was a party pitching for the protest vote, then the government was potentially vulnerable. And in a sense, I think one of the important things, therefore, about this by-election is I think this is the first by-election at which we can say that the Liberal Democrats regained the role of the classic party of by-election protest at times of conservative difficulty. That was a role they performed readily and often before 2010, when, of course, they entered into coalition with the Conservatives in government. Since then, the only by-elections they've won have either been constituencies that voted Remain, like Richmond out just in London, or Chesham and Amersham just outside, or uh, in Brecon there was, a, there was a bit of a deal with Plaid Cymru. Now we see the Liberal Democrats doing well in a pro-Brexit constituency, but just picking up the protest vote. A protest vote that in part comes from people who would otherwise have voted Conservative, that's the foundation of it, but then also managing to persuade people who would otherwise vote Labour to vote for them. And I think this also begins to mark the end of the antipathy amongst many Labour voters to the Liberal Democrats because of their involvement in the coalition, an antipathy that has meant that Labour voters have perhaps been less willing to switch to the Liberal Democrats tactically than they were in the past. Perhaps now that uh, era has been forgotten as far as Labour voters are concerned. So that's all the most immediate proximate stuff. Now, we should remember, however, that support for the Conservatives has indeed been falling even before the Aaron Patterson affair. Um, and to that extent, at least, this is also part of a longer story whereby the fact that the Conservatives have had to increase taxes, or at least they're going to have to increase taxes, in order to fund the health service and social care, that's some Conservative voters are not uh, uh, too happy about. Um, of course, there were the problems with uh, shortages of lorry drivers, shortages in the supermarkets, etc. That also has helped to erode uh, the uh, uh, Conservatives' perceptions for competence. So put all this together, and a government which had seemed relatively self-assured against a pretty weak opposition, um, all of a sudden has lost that assuredness of foot and indeed has just simply the combination of circumstance and self-inflicted damage now sees it, you know, as much as 12, 13 points adrift of the tally it had just two years ago. And how much of all of that could be positively affected by a change of leader? Well, um, 
let's break it down into the two parts. There's the circumstances and there are the self-inflicted wounds. The self-inflicted wounds are undoubtedly are largely Boris Johnson's responsibility. It was Boris Johnson who tried to get his troops to um, overturn the um, proposed suspension for Owen Patterson only eventually having to climb down because of the adverse reaction. And it's Boris Johnson who has been trying to say to people the rules were not broken a year ago, um, there wasn't a party, um, statements that he frankly has not been able to persuade large sections of the public to believe. Now, this, the, both these incidents are perhaps indicative of a wider criticism or characteristic of the Prime Minister. This is a Prime Minister who is focused on trying to get what he wants done, done, and is relatively unconcerned about the process by which he gets there. This, after all, is a Prime Minister that back in September 2019 was told by the Supreme Court that he had broken the law in trying to prorogate Parliament and therefore stop it uh, from meeting as part of his attempt to try and drive Brexit through. Now, on that occasion, he didn't suffer a serious adverse public reaction because at least half the public were in favour of his objective, which was trying to pursue Brexit. The reason why the Prime Minister's style has now been his undoing is that he still tried to pursue that style for two things that nobody else believes in. One, there, are, there isn't a public out there who thinks that it's a good idea that MPs' lives should be made easier and that they should be allowed to take money in order to lobby ministers. Nobody thinks that's a good idea, so therefore people object to the attempt to try and avoid Owen partisan suspension. And there certainly isn't a constituency out there of voters who think, well, yes, of course, we have to keep to the rules on lockdown, but it's absolutely fine if people in and around 10 Downing Street don't. We know that from the Dominic Cummings fair, that people think very badly of uh, those close to the prime minister seemingly ignoring the uh, strict lockdown rules. So at this point, the prime minister's style becomes his undoing. Now, whether or not Boris Johnson can change his style, well, who knows? You know, it will require a change, a change. But changing the leader would certainly perhaps mean we had somebody who was less likely to make that kind of mistake. But that still doesn't leave the other problems the Conservatives face. They are faced the fact that they're still having to manage a pandemic, a very difficult pandemic. Of course, it's uh, it's resurged. Um, and the government faces some very difficult choices. And of course, we are talking about a prime minister and a party that is frankly deeply reluctant to go back to much in the way of restrictions. We saw uh, the difficulty that was uh, last week just simply introducing some relatively modest measures, 100 Tory MPs reject. The London stance is very different from that in Edinburgh and Cardiff and Belfast, all of which have tighter measures and all of which frankly wish to impose tougher measures, but are limited at the moment by the fact that the UK government wouldn't be willing to fund these uh, uh, tougher measures. Now, the pandemic isn't going to go away. That making that, those uh, difficulties and dealing with it is something that this government is going to have to deal with, irrespective of who's prime minister, and it may have to make decisions that is not in accordance with its instinct. The other uh, uh, thing, of course, is that the uh, pandemic has resulted in this government planning for levels of public expenditure and taxation, 
which are in both cases, you know, either the highest in 50 years or in one case pretty much the highest since the 1950s. This is not a comfortable position for many conservatives to be in. But again, whatever with Boris Johnson's instincts, and it's not entirely clear that Boris Johnson is a small state politician, but the truth is just trying to deal with the legacy of the pandemic has in a sense again forced the conservatives into a position which many of them find uncomfortable. And um, whoever were to succeed Boris Johnson will still have to deal with exactly those same realities, realities that conservatives struggle to deal with. Now you mentioned the C word, Cummings. Uh, to what extent uh, have things begun to rattle down for Boris Johnson since he parted company with uh, his Svengali? Uh, maybe the prime minister's brain is missing. Well, first of all, remember that it was Donick Cummings' famous trip to Durham and then to Barnard Castle that first did serious electoral damage to the Conservatives. Before that trip, they were running at about 50% in the polls because everybody was hoping that they were going to solve the pandemic. Uh, that, that balloon got punctured in the wake of Dominic Cummings and they never recovered from that. But actually, remember that actually not long after Dominic Cummings left Downing Street, um, the Conservatives uh, position, which at that stage was around 50-50 with Labour in the polls, improved quite considerably because, of course, of the vaccine rollout. There is no doubt that the vaccine rollout is the one element of the pandemic that the Conservatives have persuaded people is A, a success and, and B, a success for which they should be, they are entitled to take the credit. And of course, they also argue that they were able to achieve this because we weren't inside the European Union. Now, that's a position we can argue about, but that's the claim they make, and it's a claim that they've sold very successfully. Um, so actually, you know, during the spring, uh, summer of this year, Conservatives quite clearly lead in the opinion polls. No Dominic Cummings around. Um, it's only more recently that the ship of state uh, in 10 Downing Street has proved to be rather more difficult. Now, it's certainly true. I mean, you know, frankly, I don't know these characters in 10 Downing Street any better than anybody else. One is told that uh, the people who are now in 10 Downing Street are perhaps some, both amongst officials and amongst special advisors are perhaps somewhat short on the kind of experience that might be need, needed to deal with the Prime Minister's office in a time of crisis and difficulty. Well, I'll leave that to rest. I'll simply report what we are told. Um, but clearly, um, it's certainly not been a happy ship at 10 Downing Street. And it's certainly not one that has dealt with recent affairs with acute political intelligence. Now, as uh, Macmillan uh, taught us, it's never one damn thing, but one damn thing after another. Uh, and uh, no sooner was North Shropshire and its message uh, delivered uh, uh, across the face of the Prime Minister, uh, one of his key cabinet ministers, Lord Frost, uh, walked out the door. How much is that going to damage him? Well, I think the Lord Frost story kind of takes us back to the fact that, you know, Boris Johnson's initial problem during the last six weeks was not so much with the electorate, although the electorate, uh, as already said, uh, have had their uh, negatives about him, but actually losing a lot of the trust of his parliamentary party. The Owen Paterson affair in which he marched his troops into the lobby only then to do a U-turn 24 hours later, did an awful lot of damage to uh, many Tory MPs' confidence and trust 
in the Prime Minister's ability to do the job effectively. And since then, the but we're almost be, perhaps beginning to see that old fissure inside the Conservative Party that Boris had managed to end, that fissure between the libertarian Brexit-inclined end of the party and the more centrist end of the party that's decided to swallow Brexit but was never keen on it, that that fissure may be opening up again. Because, of course, many of those who have been sceptical about the lockdown measures, really from uh, during the course of the last 12 months, have come disproportionately from those who made Theresa May's life pretty much a misery over Brexit. Um, and Lord Frost is undoubtedly somebody who's part of that number. He's clearly somebody who is you know, very keen on Brexit. The fact that we have a Brexit which minimises the extent to which the UK is obliged to follow EU regulations is entirely the product of Lord Frost's vision. He is also a small state conservative. He's amongst those Brexiteers who was hoping that Brexit was going to lead to smaller government, less regulation, and he's also instinctively against lockdown. And certainly, uh, that this incident is a is a together with the vote last Tuesday, is an in, perhaps an indication as to how Boris Johnson is now at risk of seeing his premiership beginning to be run ragged by internal divisions within the Conservative Party. And indeed, not on Tuesday, the only way he could get his vote through was off the back of Labour votes. Now, it's his good fortune at the moment, Labour Party are willing to back him over coronavirus in the way the Labour Party weren't willing to back Theresa May over Brexit. So therefore, she, uh, the, the rebellions meant she couldn't get her Brexit deal through. But of course, you know, there will, uh, one of the fascinating things again that we're now looking at is what's the Labour Party going to say about coronavirus in the coming days and weeks? At the moment, they're still standing back from actually saying, we think the government should introduce more measures, but maybe they will. Um, and then the question is, well, if Boris Johnson doesn't follow them, does he then lose the confidence of the Labour Party in the handling of the pandemic? Because at the moment, that's not something that the Prime Minister can afford. But of course, equally, he finds himself caught in a rock between a hard place. He can't afford to upset his own party much anymore. And then a Tory MP for Bridgend drives his car into a lamppost and fails the breathalyzer. Uh, breaking news. Another by-election, perhaps, Sir John. We'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. It depends, of course, uh, on whether it becomes a custodial offence or not, or whether, I mean, you've, you've, there's got to be a reason as to why the by-election is triggered, and that would normally require him, you know, there being some kind of custodial offence. So um, uh, we, will, we will have to uh, see whether that's the case. Of course, in the meantime, the other thing which is true is that um, Liz Truss has been put in charge of the negotiations that... Um, uh, Lord Frost has vacated, so evidently nobody knew uh, nobody knew is going to be added to cabinet. So that means that Liz Truss is now not only uh, foreign secretary and equalities minister, but has now got to try and extract the government from the weeds of the Northern Irish Protocol, a protocol, of course, to which the prime minister agreed in the first place, um, but which so far at least the UK government has not been able to negotiate the deal in a way uh, that either it, he with with which it's happy or indeed many people in Northern Ireland are happy. Well, she's been set up to fail on that, isn't she? I mean, uh, Boris doesn't like that she's been on manoeuvres 
literally on top of a tank, uh, imitating Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, and now she's got to go and defend a position which I think in their heart the uh, Tories have already sold. Well, you may be right. That could well be the, the Machiavellian uh, position that the Prime Minister is going on. The other hand, of course, um, she is a bit of a convert to Brexit. I mean, she was very keen on uh, negotiating free trade deals when she was Secretary of State for the Department of Trade. And indeed, I think it's her performance in that role that... Uh, Helped persuade the prime minister that she should he should be she should replace Dominic Raab as foreign secretary, a role in which uh, Dominic Raab didn't always seem to be entirely happy. So you know you may be right, George. The alternative interpretation is that perhaps he's decided that he needs a a he needs a, a safe pair of hands, but a pair of hands that perhaps might be somewhat more willing to do his bidding than perhaps in the end. Lord Frost was willing to do. Lord Frost, at the end of the day, very clearly had his own agenda over Brexit, an agenda that perhaps the Prime Minister was happy to allow him to pursue for a long time, uh, but not uh, when it began to cut across other decisions that the Prime Minister felt was essential for, uh, for his government. Professor Sir John Curtis, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Now, Li Jinjing is a Chinese journalist and broadcaster who was a very great hit the last time uh, she was on here. And we've brought her back to discuss one or two matters of pressing concern to the world about her country of China. Lee, thank you very much for joining us uh, again at this uh, early hour uh, for you. But let me ask you about Chris Patton, first of all, because it will have come as some kind of surprise to many viewers and listeners, that it was Margaret Thatcher uh, that signed the deal to return Hong Kong to China. It was egregiously taken from China, of course, in an unequal treaty, but with a time limit. That time limit ran out. Mrs. Thatcher agreed the handover, but the British have never really accepted uh, that they were handing Hong Kong back to China. And that may be the origin of some of the other issues that we're going to talk about tonight. Am I right? Yes. You know what, George? Uh, but first, uh, thanks for having me back to your show. Welcome. Always a pleasure to be here with you. And you know what? Um, I probably have some connection issues. Uh, there's no image of me. Let me well, we definitely um, need an image of you. We can hear you, so keep talking, and we'll get okay, the image cool. back. So, you know what? Like I studied in the UK. I studied in the UK, and it's it, and I studied journalism in the UK. It's always funny to me. It's always funny to me that whenever during the July the first, the return date, the Hong, the day that Hong Kong returned to to the mainland, I can always see you know like the on the BBC, the Guardian. I never see the celebration, like how happy Chinese are during this day. I mean, it's a big contradiction. When the day, biggest celebration, and you see how happy Chinese are, how happy many people in Hong Kong are, and we have big ceremonies. And then when I turn to BBC and Guardian, it's always how sad, how depressed, how oppressed people are. It's, it's so bizarre to me, but then, <laughs> But then, like, 
So uh, that's the probably the first hit I realized, okay, there's a big uh, contradictions of uh, a big misunderstandings about this return of Hong Kong. But yeah, okay, so, and even this, this frustration for many people in Britain probably still lasts to today because just a few days ago, yesterday, I saw um, a clip from BBC, I think. One of the experts was talking about because now China finally have no foreign interferences. They can elect the uh, the government of officials uh, by themselves. And then the experts say, well, you know what? Uh, now, basically, Hong Kong is going back to the colonial period, uh, except the governor is appointed by Beijing instead of London. <laughs> it's totally outrageous. Uh, it is. It is. But what is worse is not being able to see you. Uh, so we're going to get you back within 60 seconds or so. Let me read some social. Uh, Jonathan Wood says, all COVID-19 is serious. Another surge, whether or not less virulent, is a concern and needs to be taken seriously. I trust what I hear from doctors and NHS staff. Yeah, I think governments are manipulating it for their purposes. And uh, Jamie Jack says, I went with exaggerated. You have one side saying there is no evidence the Omicron is less severe than Delta. Then the other side, where it was first discovered, claiming it is less severe. Honestly, no wonder people are confused with conflicting claims flying around. And Georgie Harrison says, all I know is I was unable to see my dying mother for over six weeks as visiting was limited, then stopped due to other people not taking COVID seriously. I saw her in her casket the other week and we laid her to rest on Thursday. I have taken COVID seriously and continue to do so. Amen. And uh, my uh, sincere condolences, Georgie. Chris Torfin, who is in China, says it's a bit too binary, Gigi. Basically, I think the UK MSM are producing COVID porn on this issue, whilst the UK government, as usual, have not taken the latest variant seriously, particularly given some major failure in the vaccine rollout, i.e. it doesn't prevent infection. I don't know that it ever promised to prevent infection. I certainly never imagined it as preventing infection. I got my vaccination uh, because I believed and continue to believe that if I do get infected, I'm less likely to die from it if I have been uh, vaccinated. Uh, that's a different thing, Chris, uh, to that. Now, uh, Li Junjing is back with us uh, in all her glory. Yes, she is. On that point, Lee, now, the, again, coming down the road from Scotland today, I was listening to the BBC talking about the Hong Kong elections. And every bulletin, everyone, stressed the fact that only those loyal to Beijing are able to participate as candidates in the Hong Kong elections. And in the end, I was shouting at the radio in the car, because I don't know if you yourself are fully aware of this, but as a member of parliament for almost 30 years, I had to pledge allegiance 
after every single election, with my hand on a Bible, I had to pledge allegiance to Her Majesty the Queen and all, all of her heirs and successors, whoever they were, whether uh, good or bad. I had to pledge allegiance or I would not have been allowed to sit down in my chair in the House of Commons. In fact, I wouldn't even have been allowed to be paid. I wouldn't have got my salary. Even though I was elected by the people, I had to pledge my allegiance to the British crown before I could sit in the parliament. Give me, if you would, any major differences between what I've just described as the British system and what China and Hong Kong now have in terms of theirs. Thank you so much for pointing that out. Exactly. I think for every country, all the government officials, they have to pledge allegiance to their respective officials. So why is suddenly a problem when Chinese, when Hong Kong, China's territory are, are requiring the same thing, patriots governing, governing their own territory is a problem for many people in Britain and in America. <laughs> it's so double standard and so hypocritical. So, and, uh, and also countries like the US or the UK keep criticizing China over the Hong Kong issue about democracy, where in the f first place, Britain, Britain never gave Hong Kong democracy. Chris Patton was appointed by the UK back then. So if you never given people the democracy that you've been praying all this time, so why you're making a fuss about Hong Kong now? Indeed so. Now, on the subject of double standards, uh, the Grand Prix uh, successfully took place in uh, Saudi Arabia the other week, um, even though there was blood on the tracks. Uh, but the Winter Olympics are now the subject of uh, a boycott, uh, at least on the political level. Have you gotten over yet the dreadful news uh, that you will not be visited by Joe Biden uh, as uh, an official visitor at the Winter Olympics? Yeah, too bad. Politicians won't come to the Winter Olympic Games because Olympic is a game all about politicians participating, right? <laughs> I mean, who really cares about whether politicians are coming to this event, especially during this COVID period. But okay, so about this boycott, I think, first, it's not a athletic boycott. It's not a commercial boycott. It's a diplomatic boycott, which basically just means they don't send politicians to come here, but it doesn't have any impact on athletes participating and also won't impact uh, on the broadcasting on televisions or doesn't have any impact on the uh, commercial sponsors. So basically it's a non-story. Oh, I think particularly in the sporting circle. But so it doesn't affect China here. It doesn't affect the Winter Olympic Games. It definitely will, uh, will happen. And a lot of people are waiting for this big moment. But I think this is uh, maybe for, for Biden, it's more like sending a message domestically because he has to act tough uh, towards this China, this uh, foreign enemy, right? 
uh, to keep his butt in the chair in the White House for a longer time. He has to act tough. And this for him domestically. And the fourth, I think secondly, probably this is a chance for them to keep pushing their uh, anti-China propaganda. Uh, by that, I mean the human rights abuse allegations, totally false, and the so-called genocide. Uh, I think the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, said they, broadcast, they won't send any diplomats to Beijing because given the PRC's ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses, which are completely groundless, I have to say. Um, for example, like last time I was on your show, George, I mentioned some of the, the facts. I can briefly uh, mention again because the genocide were totally just false allegations because the uh, first, the Uyghur population is growing much faster than any other ethnic groups, uh, not just in Xinjiang, in all China. And the populations of Uyghurs uh, grew from uh, 3.6 million in 1953 to 11.6 million to 2020. So in the past 67 years, the population of Uyghurs grew by 8 million. And second, Uyghurs got many favorable policies uh, in terms of being, uh, being enrolled in universities and got hired by government departments or companies. Uh, for example, if you are a Uyghur, you get a lot more scores in your, in your college entrance exams. So, so that's basically to help Uyghurs to get, go to get higher education. And third, um, the uh, forced labor and I mean, and also the one-child policy, I forgot to mention that. Uh, all ethnic groups were exempted from the one-child policy when uh, the policy was only recently being abolished because the general uh, dec declining birth rate. But when Han people could only have one child, Uyghurs can have three or four or multiple kids. So, I mean, that three basically says that's no genocide is going on. But... Um, and, but we have to see where all these allegations about this so-called human rights abuses come from. Basically, either it's about genocide or forced labor or sterilization towards weaker women. All these atrocities, allegations come from the one think tank called ASPI in Australia. It's called Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And all this uh, China, so-called China expert who have never came to China before, conducted uh, all this research on their keyboard, uh, twisting, abusing all these government papers and the data and making all these allegations. And their research were amplified by all this big corporate media. But this think tank, why, are they, why is this think tank doing this? If you look at the sponsors, you will find out their sponsors in, include multiple governments. Australian governments, U.S. government, U, a British government, Japanese government, and also the U.S. Defense Department, Australian Defense Department. So this think tank is basically sponsored by several governments, all these governments that were really trying hard to contain China and also the military industrial complex. So you know what they are doing, why they are making these allegations. Quite so. And they give this... Yeah. And the, 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 these people don't like Muslims very much and they don't like the Chinese very much, but they absolutely love Chinese Muslims. Uh, if you yeah. believe that, I've got a bridge uh, in London uh, I can sell you. Just uh, quickly, uh, the Chinese tennis player who was the original cause celebre in the run-up to the Olympic uh, Games, they've dropped that now. 
uh, because uh, she's alive and well and playing tennis. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's just another excuse that all these media or these government officials, they were already pushing this boycott even before the, the, the tennis players thing happened. And now it's funny to see what they are so passionate about treating this event as like last straw. Oh, see, that's what they're doing to their athletes. And they keep asking for, show me the images of her. We don't see images for where is she? And then the image of her pops up and so, no, that's just image. It could be old image. Let me see uh, a video of her. And the video pops up. She's having dinner with her friends, talking. And so, no, but she's not doing tennis related stuff. And then, and they, then, dro and then they dropped it altogether. Uh, Lee, it's been wonderful uh, to see you again. I hope it's not long before we see you again. I've got to take a break now. Well, the poll is actually quite overwhelming. Uh, most people, 88% of respondents, believe that Omicron is being exaggerated. That's on my uh, Twitter feed. On my YouTube, it's 80% think it's exaggerated. Uh, but on Telegram, it's 87% think that it's being exaggerated. Uh, Thousands of you have voted already. You've got about an hour or 45, 50 minutes or so to vote. You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube channel, and on my Telegram channel. And there's a huge response on social media. Christine Watson says, it seems that Boris is doing a Theresa May on Brexit, i.e. no change. Boris is not interested, does not care, and possibly welcomes EU dominance. Well, don't forget that on the eve of the Brexit campaign kicking off, Boris Johnson wrote two columns for the Daily Telegraph, one arguing for Remain and one arguing for Brexit. And he only decided literally at the last moment to publish the one supporting Brexit. Billy G says down under here, the media never lets up on anti-China news. And the Bolshevik beekeeper, is there a better name on social media than the Bolshevik beekeeper? Uh, says, today is my first day out of isolation after recently testing positive for COVID. Chest still rattly, but taste and smell have returned. I'm unvaccinated and intend to remain so. The scaremongering and vaccine pressure is to be resisted. And Dave Walker says, packed pub last night, negative today. I'm boosted as well. I prefer to take my chances in life. My choice, it completely unfazes me and those close to me. My mum is nearly 70 and also wishes to crack on with life. If you don't like it, lock yourself in a cupboard. And John Speck says... We in South Africa have no lockdowns during this period, and we have had the Omicron basically first. Sounds pretty ridiculous, the lengths that some countries are going to. And Dave Hill says, sadly, Labour are now the non-opposition party due to ignoring its voters during Brexit and more recently backing disproportionate government 
COVID measures. So sad. So sad was 80 years ago, uh, the Japanese fascist attack on the people of Hawaii at Pearl Harbor, which caused great loss of life and great material damage uh, to the United States Armed Forces. It had the paradoxical effect of bringing the United States into the war. They might never have joined the war. They might have watched it on newsreel as they had been doing up until that point. But it did indeed bring the United States into the war and that was a very significant turning point indeed. Most people's knowledge of Hawaii, uh, apart from having a kind of fitful wish to go and visit it sometime, it definitely looks like a Pacific paradise. We've seen Hawaii 5.0. We, those of us of a certain age, watched Elvis in uh, Blue Hawaii, a very fine uh, album and a very fine movie. But that's probably as much knowledge as most people have got about Hawaii, at least on this side of the ocean. It came as a surprise to me then when seeking to talk to someone about the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, I discovered that actually things are not going well between the colonizing power, I think we have to call them that, of the United States of America and the native people of Hawaii. Uh, the man I spoke to was Kanila Ng, who is a former Hawaii state representative, and I've persuaded him to come and give you the benefit of the wisdom he's already given me. Kanyela, welcome uh, to the mother of all talk shows. Wonderful to see you again, looking wonderful. Um, let's, uh, let's dispense first uh, with the very auspicious and somber anniversary uh, that the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor and the attack on it more particularly uh, meant to the people of the island? Was it much commemorated? What was the form, shape of the commemoration? This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Sure. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, good to see you again. And uh, yeah, the you know we say we'll never forget uh, the attacks on Pearl Harbor. Uh, it does show that uh, we're not all safer when you're an occupied nation. 
um, we used to, we used to colonize a lot of Native Hawaiians, um, consider our nation still existing, but occupied because in fact, the United States recognized in 1992 that the overthrow of our government was illegal and illegitimate. Uh, there was a resolution that Bill Clinton signed um, that said so, but of course there's nothing to, that they did in restitution um, in order to, you know, okay, give me teeth to that resolution, but they did recognize. So, you know, if it's not actually colonized, it's, it's occupied. And we've seen time and time again that um, we're not all safer because of it. And sometimes uh, we can even be worse off. Uh, the most three polluted spots in Hawaii are on or adjacent to military bases. Uh, we call them EPA Superfund sites here, Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, and uh, most recently, uh, they poisoned our water source uh, here through with petroleum uh, jet fuel. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's well, I just... wanted to I wanted to talk to you about that. But just before we come on to it, how overbearing, how large is the U.S. military presence in Hawaii? And is there any other U.S. presence uh, other than military? Is there a big U.S. civil society program in Hawaii, for example? Well, one third. So. The majority of the population of Hawaii is on one island, Oahu. About 90% of our population is on this island. Um, and of that island, one third of the land is controlled by the federal government of the United States. 22% of the island is controlled by the military. So we're really reliant on the jobs and the economy, uh, but that's on purpose. And if you actually break it down, like where are these jobs going? Can civilians even apply for them? Uh, are they... Uh, good enough jobs where you only need one job to survive, um, generally the answer is no. And these are government jobs, meaning that if we just diverted those funds, so instead of paying to build weapons and you know our livelihoods depend on the death and destruction of others abroad, if we just diverted those funds to b create jobs for our own human needs, uh, we'd all be much, much better off. So there's idea that like, yeah, but we rely on military and from a lot of um, us in the Native community and the environmental justice community, uh, that therein lies the problem, that, that that reliance is actually the issue. And how are relations between the occupying military forces and the local people? Um, well, over time, you know, we're, you, we're in an American education system, we're in an American value system. So uh, we were taught from very on that um, very early that we are much better off uh, with their there when they're there. So a lot of the older generations are um, staunch defenders of the military presence. Um, but a lot of the younger folks and native Hawaiians in particular and immigrants who are displaced from their own land, who are now here um, because of the U S military um, have a different perspective. So uh, you're seeing that sort of alternative um, more, more accurate, uh, view uh, rise up um, as time goes by. Now tell us about this water pollution. This is a story so extraordinary. Tell us what happened. Right. So this connects to uh, Pearl Harbor. So when we were attacked by uh, Japan, the U.S. decided to house a lot of like kind of up there their presence here. So they had uh, a lot of jets flying in and out. I mean, that was the strategy of being in Hawaii in the first place of having that jump off point in the Pacific. Uh, so they needed fuel. So what they did is they buried 
massive tanks under hills um, right above our water source, right above the aquifer. Uh, so the reason why these gas tanks were there is for this ancient war that no longer exists. So there's no reason to still have these gas tanks um, still above our aquifer, but, and it's been slowly leaking out. They've been concealing that fact for a long time and kind of the long-term impacts and the chronic impacts. But recently uh, it sort of burst it open. Uh, it's, it's really only this thick, the tank, like about an inch thick. So uh, it leaked into our, our aquifers. We saw uh, petroleum in the water fountains at elementary schools. We've seen babies from military families being rushed to the hospital. Uh, nearly 3,000 military families have evacuated their own homes uh, for Christmas. And it's, it's really sad. And you're seeing the Navy actually covering it up, um, kind of saying it's worse, uh, not as bad as it is. But, uh, you know, the people know better. The State Department of Health is... Um, at odds right now with the with the military uh so it's it's a real crisis but uh the people are rising up um the people are standing up and this is a rare opportunity where you see folks that identify as a pro-military and conservative standing with uh folks who've been you know asking them to leave for a long time and at what scale is that on now and are the u.s government taking it seriously the well the scale it's, it's hard to tell because, you know, they're trying to obscure facts and minimize the impact uh, or minimize the perception of the impact. But, uh, you know, it, it, there's at least uh, 80, 60 to 80,000 residents that are being impacted. Uh, and I don't know, like in my community, which isn't even really close to the source, uh, restaurants are being precautionary and not even they're like serving bottled water for free instead of tap water. Uh, so, and you can kind of see it, like when you pour a glass of water, you can see there's something off. Uh, so, uh, it, yeah, it, the, the, they're purposely trying to not, not avail the data. Um, but yeah, it, it's just, it's not, it doesn't look like they're taking any real action. Uh, uh native Hawaiian leaders, environmental leaders have written to the, to the uh, president, making sure that he's, he's aware. Uh, we heard back that, yeah, he's aware, but we haven't seen any action so far. Uh, and, you know, it, it's like civilian control of democracy is supposed to be a tenet of American democracy. Like that's, that's part of the American promise. Uh, but this is just yet another example of uh, fascist hypocrisy. The American dream problem is you've got to be asleep to believe it. Kanila Ng. Thanks very much. I, I wish you a speedy return to the Hawaiian Legislative Assembly. I'm sure that you will. I know there's no vacancy, but humor me, there's going to be. Boris Johnson will not remain in number 10 Downing Street for very much longer. I'm not at liberty to tell you the things that are coming down the pipe, but I've seen some of the videos, some of the WhatsApp messages, and I've heard secondhand from people who have and who tell me that Boris Johnson, now hanging on by his fingernails, will not remain in power for very much longer. But even if you don't believe me, humor me. If he walked under the Clapham omnibus, and I'm sure that he could never be so blind drunk as to do that, but if he did have too much wine and cheese, and walked out into Whitehall and the Clapham omnibus ran over him, who would succeed him? Now, this is not 
a recommendation. It's not an endorsement. I, in one level, couldn't care less who is the leader of the British Conservative Party. Trust me. But it is my job to try and predict events, to try and be ahead of the curve. And so last night when I pointed out uh, that this all bore an uncanny resemblance to the last days of Margaret Thatcher to me, and I was there in Parliament sitting opposite him when Geoffrey Howe, the departing foreign uh, chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, devastated uh, the uh, premiership of Margaret Thatcher. I heard him talk about being sent in to bat only to discover that the captain had broken uh, the bat and the wickets and the bales and so on. And although you could have heard a pin drop that day, the noise afterwards was very considerable and it led to the defenestration of Mrs. Thatcher. This all has that feel of it to me. My own view is that the main future of the Conservative Party lies in a new set of hands. Someone like Sunak, if they go down the liberal uh, route, or someone like uh, Baker, if they go down the, uh, the right-wing libertarian uh, route, or maybe even people we've not heard of yet. But what the Conservative Party is likely to do if the Prime Minister departs prematurely, which I predict that he will, is go for somebody to steady the ship as an interim Prime Minister who will not fight the next election as their leader, but steady the ship over the next 12 months or so. And that's why I think that Michael Gove will be the man to get the gig. I think other people will quickly be found out as being made of straw. Liz Truss, for example, is made of straw. Dominic Rabb is as thick as two planks of wood nailed together. Rishi Sunak is super smooth and silky and filthy rich, but I don't believe he has established himself yet in the public's mind, in the party's mind to be given the gig right away. But I appreciate that that is a minority view. So we're asking on this poll, who will succeed Boris Johnson as Prime Minister? A, Rishi Sunak, B, Dominique Rab, C, Liz Truss. You can vote on my uh, Twitter feed, on my YouTube, on my Telegram. One person who doesn't have to worry about any of that is my RT America colleague, Rachel Blevins. She doesn't care whether it's Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss because she's living under Joe Biden, can you imagine? Rachel, welcome back uh, to the show. Always a delight to see you. Speaking of Joe Biden, he's hung his hat on this uh, bill, this uh, mega spending bill. I don't refer to the uh, mega spending defense budget, but the, yeah. the, uh, the, the bill to rebuild, refloat the American economy after the pandemic. But it now looks as if it's not going to go through because there's one 
Democratic Party holdout who's going to sink it. Tell us. Yeah, it has turned into uh, good old Senator Joe Manchin being the one to sink Biden's entire presidency in just a morning if you focus only on the headlines that we've seen so far. And if you listen to the statement that we got from Press Secretary Jen Psaki earlier today. Now, it's interesting because when we're talking about this $2 trillion spending bill, it is more than 2,000 pages long. And that is still crazy to me that this is the way that Congress does things. Instead of getting on the floor instead of actually doing their job and going through each individual issue, voting on it individually and debating on it individually. Instead, what they do is they cram it into this massive bill. And we have to remember that this current, as they refer to it, the Build Back Better bill, this is what Democrats have really been promising because they just passed another package a few weeks ago, which was specifically aimed at infrastructure. However, it didn't include a lot of the things that Democrats like Joe Biden have campaigned on in terms of childcare, in terms of funding for certain climate change initiatives and the likes. However, Democrats said, hey, we've got the majority in the House, the Senate and the White House. We are going to make sure that all of those other policies are passed. We're going to include it in this new bill. But the problem with doing that is that they needed every single Democrat to support it. So when you have someone like Joe Manchin who comes out and says, actually, I'm not able to vote for this. I'm going to have to vote no. Then that turns the entire plan into chaos. And it's crazy to think about the fact that we're literally looking at something that is being voted on down party lines instead of looking at each individual issue and deciding, okay, what do the American people need right now? What should be prioritized right now? Instead of doing that, they're wanting to pass something that is $2 trillion and is apparently held up by a single senator's vote. And the reason that Manchin says that he can't support it is because it's adding to the national debt, which is now nearly $30 trillion. And it always makes me laugh whenever members of Congress start talking about the national debt and start warning about it because they raise that debt ceiling like it's nobody's business. I mean, they've done it dozens of times. It's become almost an expected thing that whenever they decide that they want to spend more, whenever they decide that they want to print more money, they just go in there and raise the debt ceiling a little higher. So I guess now that it's getting to nearly $30 trillion, they're deciding that they just may have an issue with it. What's $30 trillion between friends? What can Joe <laughs> Biden do to this recalcitrant senator? Is he biddable? Is he buyable? Is he browbeatable? Well, apparently it's sounding like he's not at the moment, given the fact that he has every single Democrat now calling him out and saying that he is the one who is to blame if this doesn't go through. And, you know, it's interesting because, of course, they're going to try to put all of the blame for any of you know, Biden's failings onto Joe Manchin now before it was Kamala Harris. Now they found a new person to pick. But we have to remember that Biden's approval ratings were already tanking. Americans are already concerned about the fact that we have inflation here near 40 year highs, about the fact that our economy as a whole is struggling. We're seeing gas prices skyrocket. I mean, there are so many individual things that we should be focusing on. But instead, now the media as a whole and, of course, the Biden administration gets to just point at Joe Manchin and act like they're going to, you know, make something happen in terms of going after his career. And this is when the Democrats control the White House, the Senate and the House. What about after the midterms when they almost certainly lose control of two of those three uh, arms of government? 
Exactly. And it's interesting because they have put so much around this Build Back Better plan saying that the midterms are riding on them passing this funding, passing this $2 trillion package. And yeah, exactly. If they're not able to pass it, if they go into the new year, then that does not look good for the Democrats because they told everyone, you get Trump out of office, you make sure that there is a Democratic majority all around it. We will give you everything that we've been campaigning for. And now they're showing that that's something that they're not able to follow through on. Now, I was caught, uh, I read the New York Times at weekends, and uh, I saw that they had uh, some really uh, dramatic news about the number of people uh, that have been slaughtered by uh, errant, uh, one assumes they're errant, uh, aerial drones. Uh, The number of people in the Middle East that are being wiped out by these drones. And we know about the uh, 10 people that were killed in Kabul, seven of them children. What is it with these drones? Why the fixation with sending drones when, as uh, Daniel Hale pointed out, the vast majority of them uh, don't hit the target that they're intended to? Yeah, I know whenever those drones were introduced and specifically when the Obama administration came in, one of the things that they promised with this that this was going to be a much more precise way to take out their targets. And, you know, it was going to be different than what we saw with the Bush administration in terms of putting boots on the ground. But yes, exactly. Now we've got the New York Times speaking out about it, reporting on just how often civilians are killed. And it is incredibly concerning when you look at the fact that this is spanning not only the Obama administration, the Trump administration, now we're getting into the Biden administration. And these precise killing machines, these predator drones, as they're called, are too often taking out civilians, too often not hitting actual targets. And it is notable because just as we saw this last week, what the Pentagon does is when something like that happens, when they see that there are several civilians that are killed, they look at it and they say, no further investigation needed. They say that no charges should be filed. They shrug it off and say, oh, it's an accident, we need to just move on, when too often those are incidents that actually need to be investigated. And the reason that they continue to happen is because these military members know that there will be no accountability, that there will be no consequences. And then oftentimes, as we've seen, as the cases with Daniel Hell, with Julian Assange, with a number of those people who have actually spoken out about it, the people who are targeted, the people who actually face consequences are those who reveal just how devastating these drone strikes are, who reveal that to the public and the people who are responsible for them are the ones who walk away free and who are even celebrated for their patriotism here in this country. Lastly and briefly, if you would, Rachel, uh, the trial of uh, Ghislaine Maxwell is coming to uh, a rather abrupt end. Uh, It has not gone on or is not going to go on as long as had been provided for Uh, What's your feeling? Is she going to be convicted or not? You know, if she is convicted, I could see it being much more of a slap on the wrist, especially the way that this has played out with the fact that she has constantly been painted 
as this poor helpless woman who was just pulled into Jeffrey Epstein's web as you know her team has tried to put the emphasis on the fact that this is a trial that Epstein never got to have. And it's unfortunate because even in the cases where we have been able to hear from victims who had their lives destroyed by Ghislaine Maxwell, by Jeffrey Epstein, all too often, they are sort of painted as just opportunists who should have been happy with the payout that they got if they got one at all, and who are just doing this for your attention. So I really do hope that this is one of those cases where we see more and more being brought against her. But at the moment, when it comes to having faith in the U.S. justice system, especially when it comes to this trial, I can honestly say that I do not have much. Rachel, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on this busy evening. Now, Michael McCaffrey, another colleague of mine at RT.com, is by far and away the best film critic anywhere in any medium. And I sincerely mean that. I read everything that he writes, and you should too. In fact, you should follow him on social media, as well as reading him on RT.com. But I don't always bring his work to the wider public in the way that I'm doing so this evening. I'm doing so this evening for the simple reason that his review of Sex in the City is simultaneously the best written review of any film I've ever read, but also the most savagely funny film review that I've ever read. Now, I know some of you will be saying, well, Sex in the City, why are we discussing this on the mother of all talk shows? Well, we don't let popular culture go unnoticed here. And millions and millions of people, including me, and my good wife have watched Sex in the City, albeit we knew uh, that it was, as it were, framing and eulogizing some of the worst values of American capitalism. And we watched because, well, you need to know what the enemy is putting out and what is going into the minds of the people in the enemy's countries. So I've always had a jaundiced but interested view in sex in the city. Michael McCaffrey, well, he's just jaundiced. And here he is to give us uh, just a scintilla, Michael, of the yes. savage eloquence with which you denounced this film. Give me your top few points. Well, first of all, thank you, George, for that uh, that stunning introduction. And I'm, I'm I mean almost it. speechless. I mean it. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I, th I think the first question we have to ask here is, out of the two of us, who is more a glutton for punishment, me for watching these shows or you for having me on to talk about them? <laughs> That's something we should discuss. Wait, wait, wait. But Nothing human is alien to me, Michael, <laughs> as Dr. Mark said. Exactly. So, yeah, Sex in the City, which ran on HBO, uh, it was one of their iconic shows. It ran from 98 to 2004 and, of course, was about four uh, women uh, feminists out in the world sort of looking for, you know, life, love and lust in New York City. Well, they're back uh, after about a 16 or 17 year break. Uh, three of the four are back anyway. And it's really rough 
to watch. It's on HBO uh, if you do want to partake in that sort of torture. But I, I was not a fan of the first show for reasons I wrote about, namely that it was this sort of vacuous capitalism porn that was teaching a whole generation of Karens in waiting to sort of uh, want to find fulfillment and freedom through the slavery of wanting to buy products that they don't need at prices they couldn't afford. And that's the jumping off point for watching And Just Like That, which is the name of the new show. And this show is so irritating to watch. First of all, the women, of course, are all very, very rich. Um, and they, none of them really have to work. Most of them are so, uh, such wonderful feminists. They live uh, on their husband's wealth and all they do is have lunch. And the other problem with the show is that it's totally unnecessary. And Sex in the City has gotten a lot of heat recently because of how it was back in the day. All the women are white. All of their friends were white. Everybody they interacted with were white. And that is a problem nowadays. And so it feels like the show was just created to uh, find redemption for that original sin of whiteness. And so they have all these token characters of color throughout but it's, boy, it's a tough watch, George. They've and, and gone woke. They're, they've gone super woke. <laughs> yes. They've gone super woke. And what's really amazing about it is, again, I was not a fan of the original show. Uh, I'm not its target audience, so that's okay. But those characters, and even the women who played them, were really uh, the embodiment of this sort of, the notion of a free-thinking, uh, a feminist, you know, that, that they didn't care what people thought about them. They were going to uh, go against convention, particularly in television at the time. That was, it was a real transition to like these empowered women, empowered sexually and things like that. And now, 17 years later, they have this existential dread of offending anyone. And they're, they're totally compliant. They never push back about uh, against the conventions, the social conventions uh, that are placed upon them which is the exact opposite of what the characters did 17 years ago. And it's just so interesting to me because as I wrote the piece, it reminds me of all these, you know, sort of neo-feminist Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris supporters who don't really care about anything except wanting to be accepted into the cool kids group. And that's what these women are. And that's, I'm sure, what their fans are. Although I have to say on Rotten Tomatoes, the, uh, the audience has given it a 39% uh, rotten mark. So it's, it's not really resonating with fans of the original show either. And it's not resonating with me. But obviously. I bet that Hillary and Kamala are big fans of it. And I bet the characters oh. are big fans of them. Oh, without question. Yeah, without question. And, you know, I lived in New York back when the show was running. I was a single man out and about in the world. And the sort of uh, the scourge of that show upon the psyche of all of these women of, the, of a certain age and the things that it made them want and want to become. And these are the people who are now in power, supporters of Hillary and Kamala. And they don't actually believe in anything except being accepted. And so they don't push back against as you have come to, to uh, learn against, say, the, uh, the label of being a TERF, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. So women like J.K. Rowling, 
who, you know, survive an abusive relationship and being dirt poor and through nothing but just the sheer um, power of their imagination and creativity and resilience uh, become enormously successful, write this book that, you know, uh, so many children in generations just love. And she's sort of kicked out of polite society because she says women are women and trans women are trans women. But that's not acceptable to like the, the sort of sex in the city, uh, Hillary Kamala group, because that offends people, that offends some people, even though back in the day, they didn't care about offending people. They cared about following their quote unquote truth. And now they're just ashamed of that. And it's really bizarre. You know, there's a character in the show, uh, the lead character, Carrie, who her job now, or I use air quotes around job, um, is to be, she co-hosts a podcast on sex. And the host of the show is a uh, non-binary, gender fluid, queer, Latinx comedian. And it's insane that (laughs) this woman, Carrie, who literally used to write uh, an article about sex in the city and all her sexcapades and all these things, she's now just ashamed and shocked at how prudish she is compared to this uh, comedian who the most remarkable thing about this character is that she's a comedian, uh, but she's not even remotely funny. It's, it's just so bizarre because it's not in keeping with the character, but it is in keeping with a current social conventions. And that's the weirdest thing to me to be creating a show that is really sort of sticking a thumb in the eye of the show that made you famous, you know, 20 years ago. It's, it's a bizarre thing. And it's got, boy, it's a terrible show. Terrible. They, they just can't move on. Michael, is your review still up on the RT.com site? It is. It is up on the RT.com site. They, interestingly, I, uh, when I pitched RT, the headline for that, the, the headline read, uh, and just like that, I threw up in my mouth. But they decided to change it. So you're going to have to look for a different headline because they thought the uh, readers wouldn't understand what I meant. So, well, uh, but that's uh, how I felt when I watched the show. <laughs> Don't I know it? I've read your review. It is <laughs> coruscating and coruscatingly brilliant. Michael McCaffrey, thanks as always for joining us. I wish we had more time, but the calls Thank are you, flooding in. Uh, who will succeed Boris Johnson as prime minister? Rishi Sunak, 55%. Dominic Rabb. 11%. Who thinks that? And Liz Truss, the pound shop Thatcherite, 34%. She's got a third of the vote across all platforms. Uh, Nathan in Falkirk, whom we lost earlier. Let's try and get him back. Nathan, welcome. George, how are you doing? Good to speak to you. And you, you go okay? ahead. Go ahead. Yes, George, I'd just like to say um, and get your views on this. The thing that really annoys me about this whole thing is the government have spent two years telling us that the way back to our freedoms and our liberty was going to be the vaccine. That if we complied with vaccinations, we would be back to normal, that we would have our freedoms back, that we would have liberty back. And here we are, two years later, with more therapeutics and more treatments than we've had in the previous two years, and we've had 90-odd percent of the population vaccinated, and the government are yet again talking about another lockdown. And 
would it not be obvious that the most majority of sane-thinking people would at this point be beginning to think, well, maybe the government and telling us all these things for the last two years are actually the biggest spreaders of vaccine misinformation. Because if the vaccines worked and the policy that the government told us and spent two years trying to convince us that we would have our freedoms back, if nothing is going to change as a result of our compliance, when will this ever end? And the other thing that really annoys me about the whole thing is we continually are told we've got to support the NHS, which is true. We have to support the NHS. But is it not the case before COVID came? There was a winter bed crisis nearly every single year. In actual fact, people pay into the NHS for the NHS to support it, not the other way around. The fact that the government have made such a mess of the NHS is their problem. And it's about time that sane-thinking people stood up and said, we're not having any more of this. We've done what you've asked us. We now have Omicron, and the government are using the same tactics they did against ordinary people during Brexit. You're thick. You're stupid. You need scientists to tell you. And we believe in scientists, but what we don't believe we in... We do, but war, uh, as Napoleon said, war is too important to be left to generals, and these matters are yes. too important to be left to scientists. Great call, Nathan. Uh, don't be a stranger. We'll, we'll get Dr. Brar on next week, and we'll, we'll, make, uh, we'll make a major part of the show next week, uh, how this is all developing. I expect, if I'm right about Tuesday and the recall of Parliament, there will be plenty more to discuss. Let's hear from Casey in Belfast. Go ahead, Casey. George, how yeah. are you? So nobody is speaking about the impact on uh, quarantines on children. I mean, children are being affected by uh, closing closure of schools the most. It's terrible. The gap between... Private education and public education is increasing. Well, the schools are children not closing. Are they closing in Belfast? My children's no, school not, isn't closed. They're not closing in Belfast, but, I mean, there are some people that are campaigning, apparently, to close schools and close there everything. Are, yeah. yeah, there and are. And it concerns me because uh, children, 80-year-old children, if they don't go to school, they're just going to be playing video games and uh, watching television at their homes. And they're being told at school, with this social distancing thing, that they can't hug or play with their mates because they have to socially distance. A child who's eight years old has been a quarter of its life with a face mask at school. It's crazy. It's crazy. And I know that many people say, well, uh, we are doing this for the virus, for the health. But we can't. Public health is not only about one uh, virus. Public health is also about cancer. It's also about uh, dealing with other health issues. And it seems like the NHS, it's only, um, it's only doing things about, uh, and uh, is only taking measures about COVID. While we're not talking about um, cancer treatment, which in Scotland, uh, I think there is a big of a crisis uh, because our whole health service in Scotland is in a crisis. I promise well, you, Casey, course. we'll return uh, to this matter next week. Uh, clear the lines. There's a legend on the line. Norma in Bristol. Always a pleasure, Norma. What would you like to say? Hello. Can you hear me? Because you're very quiet. Very clearly indeed. Oh, that's right. 
Um, I've just got two or three points. Um, on PBS America, on TV today, mm-hmm. I watched this programme, and it was called Love Not Hate. And it covered interviews with white supremacists and the Ku Klux Klan, and all the hate and horror was shown. But a few years later, they were helped with Muslims and the LGBT and Jewish and African-American communities. And they faced their guilt. And what they did was what they call converted to love, not hate. I mean, it's funny, really, because by mixing, they sort of realized their fears were unfounded and they were ashamed of what they did. And I thought it was a bit poignant at this particular time of year. Um, it was only a few of them, but it ch- they, they changed their really vile... Well, uh, I'm one of these that believes that uh, humanity can be changed for the better. I've uh, struggled all of my life uh, on that. If I believed that bad people were irrevocably bad and could never be converted, never persuaded, never changed, I wouldn't have gone into politics. I would have, uh, I don't know, sold brushes door to door. Uh, So I, I absolutely believe Uh, that uh, we have a duty to work to improve humanity, definitely. And the other thing is, um, yeah, it was, it was good. uh, My son's got COVID. Uh, My daughter-in-law has just had it. Is it Omicron, Uh, do you know? Well, um, I asked him that. He said he doesn't really know till he gets his PB, whatever it is, back. Mm -hmm. But... um, Anyway, he's not, he's, he hasn't been well, but he's getting better. And I just, I hope he'll be able to come over on Christmas Day because he lives on his own, you know. But um, just hoping that. But it uh, isn't that bad, you see, like yeah, you're saying. I mean, uh, how long is he isolating? Uh, well, it's supposed to be 10 days and... Um, I and a, and a positive, uh, rather yeah. a negative test, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, the last thing, George, honestly... Um, you know that Hawaiian man yes. kneeling? Yes. Um, oh, do you know, George, I thought he was so dishy. Um, <laughs> he's I very really handsome, thought, yeah. He's got a big future in politics, that young man. Well, I'm sure he has, but I just looked at him and I thought, God, you're attractive. You you know, I'm an old lady, but I, I thought you're so your, dishy. Your husband could be listening to this, Norma. Well, he will. Yeah, he will. He, he'll either re- he, I repeat it. I take it to him later. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be getting yeah. into trouble. Well, look, <laughs> uh, the very best to you, your husband, and your children, and their partners, and their children, uh, of course. Uh, we'll Thank be you. on air uh, next week, uh, of course, uh, on, oh, uh, on Boxing Day. Yeah, the show oh. goes on. Uh, so uh, make sure you tune in, 7 o'clock yeah. Boxing Day. It's better than happy anything Christmas. that's going to be on the television, but happy Christmas when it comes. Darren is in Southend. Let's hear from him. Darren, welcome. Hello, Jules. Good to hear from you again, mate. I just wanted to wish you a happy Christmas, you and your family, and a, Thank you. a very good New Year year before, unless I don't speak to you before the next week. But, yeah, George, it was about the Omicron, what you've been going on about yeah. that COVID general. I mean, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a shambles, really. We're, we're living in a world which we're getting inundated with misinformation. There's a lot of, like, fake news going on out there. Now, I don't... I'm not anti-vaxxer, George. I've, I've been vaxxed. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. 
if if you don't want to get the vaccine, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. If you don't want to get the vaccine for personal reasons, that's fine. If you don't want to get the vaccine, if you're against the government, that's fine. What I have a problem with is that people are getting misinformation and claiming that they have some sort of knowledge uh, on on the general public that have had the vaccine. You're mm-hmm. going to die. That some of the rhetoric that I've heard over the last. Yeah, yeah. a lot of people have gone crazy uh, over this issue, Darren. It's, uh, I haven't looked at the comments tonight, but when I do, I'll discover uh, really significant numbers of people that have clearly gone mad in the course of this, uh, this uh, pandemic. Uh, I think yeah. mental health has been very gravely affected. You took the words right out of my mouth, George. Mental health has declined drastically in the last two years. It's, yeah. it's, 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 you know, and, and a lot of the time there, a lot of people have just been in isolation and, and that causes a lot of problems. Yeah. I understand the grief. that I understand from both, both sides of the street, yeah. you know, but we, we must get united. I think it's pulling us apart. It's, it's, it's causing so much division. You know, I, I look at United States politics and I see the division there. And it's happening here. There's a lot of division going on. You're either vaccine, vaccinated or you're not. And there seems to be over. Oh, well, the overwhelming the- number of people, Darren, are vaccinated. Uh, over 90% of us are vaccinated. And, mm-hmm. uh, and as I said earlier, uh, I'd be a liar if I said that the vaccinations have worked as well as I'd hoped they would work. They haven't. Uh, on right. the other hand... Uh, the virus, especially now that it has morphed into the Omicron, isn't as bad as I originally feared uh, that it Correct. was going to be. It's yes. life, isn't it? That things are never yes, as I, good I, or as bad as they first appear. We're coming from the standpoint, George, that the government had a hand on, on this from day one, which they've not never had a hand on it. They've, they've never been in control of any of this, you know, no, it's been a shambles. If only they had been. Uh, they had plenty of time to act and yeah. they didn't act. And the None. government have uh, mishandled uh, this whole thing, ably assisted by the opposition, who have done no opposing at all. Darren, thanks for the call. Top call. Malcolm in Edinburgh, probably the last call, maybe not. Go ahead, Malcolm. Last call. Fantastic, George. You're looking dapper as ever. I've got two quick points for you, George. First one is, um, I think we're political pawns. I think that Drakeford and Sturgeon are forcing Boris's hands with their political uh, independence agendas, and Boris has to follow suit, because if it turns out bad in England, Drakeford and Sturgeon can say, see, I told you, and we're looking after you. That's my first point. There's not, well, I don't know much about Wales, Malcolm, but Scotland's outcomes are catastrophically bad, worse than anywhere else in the United Kingdom, and amongst the worst in the whole world. So I'm not sure how Nicola Sturgeon could make any political profit out of the coronavirus. As a matter of fact, she might end up on trial over the care home scandal. My point on that, George, is that do you not think that she's taking an angle to lock down harder and lock down faster with a view for her getting an independent benefit from it? It's got nothing to do with the good of the population of Scotland. Yeah. It's all but about her that, personal will, agenda. Will that profit her politically, Malcolm? Of course, because if, if, if one in 100,000 people die in Scotland and 10 in 100,000 people die in England, she's one. She's looked after her population. So Boris has to follow suit 
because he doesn't want no no prime minister of England of, of the UK wants to be responsible for independent Scotland or Wales or Ireland. Okay, powerful point. Thanks for making it. There is time for one last call, Kenny in Acton on the Labour Party. Go ahead, Kenny. Good evening, George. <laughs> I never actually said I wanted to talk about the Labour Party, to be honest. I don't know how it says that. That's what it says. Uh, just speak about what you wanted to speak about then. OK, I want to say a special thank you to the capitalist system uh, for my new 55-inch Samsung 4K TV. Well, and that sounds nice. I mean, not everything yeah. about capitalism is bad. Uh, yeah. I would just argue that we could produce these 55-inch uh, Samsung uh, televisions without Mr. Samsung. It's the workers that made it, not Mr. Samsung. I guess so, but George, I'm a little bit dumbfounded with this, the prospect of this new lockdown, so I didn't really know what to say. I just wanted to sing a Christmas song to cheer you and your listeners up. Go on then, go on. Okay, here we go. What happened to the Christmas song? Here. I'll have a new Christmas without, without you. you. I'll be so blue just thinking about you. Decorations of red on a green Christmas tree won't be the same dear if you're not here with me and when those blue snowflakes start falling that's when those blue Memories start calling You'll be doing all right With your Christmas and white But I'll have a blue, 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 blue Christmas Kenny, I've got news for Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, totally brilliant. Now listen... Because we had to cancel our Christmas party, I've come up with the idea of having a mother of all talk shows convention somewhere in England. We'll take a hotel for the whole day on a Saturday. We'll film it. We'll bring people like Kenny to sing. In fact, we'll have a karaoke. We'll have yeah. a dance. We'll have. Sounds uh, great. I'm in. We'll have the 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 best callers. Everyone who has listened participated, watched, and who wants to come will be very welcome. More details on that. Uh, in March, I'm showing my Kelly film in Liverpool. Details coming up about that. But most of all, I want to wish every single one of you a very peaceful Merry Christmas. We asked you to help the podcast reach the magic number of 100 countries. I'm unusually proud of this, as you may be able to tell. And you answered the call. South Korea 
and Moldova took us over the hill with the Moats podcast now downloaded in 101 countries. Little old us in 101 countries. So if you're not already listening to this genuinely worldwide sensation, then please subscribe so you can listen to Moats anywhere, anytime, from every corner of the earth. It's the distilled version of this show, shorn of all the peripheral material, just pure moats, 90 minutes instead of three hours. So if you do it and you love it, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're a Spotify user, please follow us and let us see when the next record broken will be. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.